So Jonah chapter 3, and then we're going to read through to chapter 4, verse 5. It's not, it's not very long, but it'll set the picture for us a bit. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. That was a sign of repentance, of turning to God. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster." Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Let me pray. Father, I just ask that you would... uh, God, help me to communicate the things that uh, you've impressed upon me through your word. God, I pray that you would help me to be led by your spirit, that you'd give me a freedom, that I would uh, remember things that aren't on my notes here that would be applicable. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would give them ears to hear, that you would give them hearts to receive your words. And Father, if any of my words are not your words, I pray that they would fall on deaf ears. It is our desire to be conformed by your word to you and who you are so that you would be most glorified in our lives. And so that's why we pray and ask for this help now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to start off asking you a few questions and be honest. Well, I hope you're honest. How many of you in your lifetime have lived in more than five different cities? Five? Six? Seven? We've got military, so Kim keeps going. So more than five, right? That's, That's pretty amazing for some of you, okay? How many of you have traveled to more than six different countries? Seven? Eight? Nine? Okay, I'll stop there. I've been to... How many of you uh, have friends in more than five different countries that you would call like close friends? So a few of you, not so many. 
How many of you have had more than five jobs in your lifetime so far? Six. So there's a few of you. Um, here, here's a question, this, and don't, don't feel shy to answer it, because I'm going to be making, it'll make sense. How many of you attended more than four different churches in your life? Five churches. Six. Seven. Right? My, my point is, is that things change. I, I texted my mom t- this week, and I asked her when she started going to the church that she is presently in. When my mom was uh, 15 years old, she had to leave her home because my grandma and grandpa were alcoholics and they couldn't afford to feed her. And so she moved into the town to live with my great-grandma. My great-grandma was the most God-fearing woman I think I've ever known, and it was transferred to my mom, praise the Lord. But my mom started attending the church that she attends now while she was living with my grandma when she was 15 or 16 years old. She's been in the same church for 65 years. Like, that is so rare today. And then I asked my mom, well, how many different places have you lived? Basically, she's lived within 20 miles of the same place her whole life, and, and, and my father as well. My dad also has gone to the same church. My mom was dating my dad when he was a young man, and my dad was not a believer. And my mom said to the Lord, if he is not, does not come to faith by my birthday, he is history. And she never said anything to my dad. And God miraculously brought my dad to the Lord, and they've faithfully attended and served one church for their whole lives and through some very difficult, hard times. Unfaithful pastors, abusive pastors, abusive friends, all the neat stuff that close family stuff happens, but a lot of blessings as well. Some of my Greatest memories are growing up in the church that I grew up in and still have some of those relationships today, although we don't see each other as much. One of the things that we do is we live in a culture that encourages us actually to look out for ourselves. I've mentioned this many, many times. We, we're encouraged to, to do what's best for ourselves or for our families, right? So when you sit down to make a decision, you go, well, this, I think this would be best for our family, We're encouraged in our retirement years to do the things that we've always wanted to do. And some of you are going through that transition now. And you're asking amazing questions, by the way. I'm so encouraged, as Gary and Lisa had a bunch of you over, to talk about this. I think it's really important because your culture will tell you a different story that you're to live for yourself. I watched a commercial, a bank commercial the other day, and it was a young woman sitting in the thing, and it was saying, here, we'll help you invest. Now, we'll help you invest whether you want to do family or whether you want to travel or whether you, like, all these things were on the same kind of plane. I also noticed on television that when the lottery comes up and those who win the lottery, it's always about the great things that you can do, buy your private island Go live on your private island, buy everything that you ever wanted. But what they never, ever tell you is to live and help other people. It's always about what's best for you. What can I get out of this? Individual. The individual is the God of this age. Self-autonomy. I've got this mentality. I don't need any help. And we struggle. I don't know if you're like me, but you struggle to ask for help when things are really difficult. Because it might be weak. It might be embarrassing. But I think we do. And then you add on top of that globalization where we're more, I mean, look at all the different places that you have lived and the places that you have gone. We live in a transient society. 
and we've placed the individual at the top, and it's begun. Most of us, well, all of us, all of us, we are immigrants. We're all immigrants, and those ancestors of us left their families to come to a new land. And there's a narrative and there's a story written deep down in your psyche about, i got to make this on my own. It's part of how you think. And it's a part of us. And that, that impacts the way we live together as community. It impacts our social lives. It impacts how we perceive community. It impacts how you and I live out our faith. Jim and I were talking about this last Sunday, just how the narratives of culture are so deeply ingrained into us that we don't even notice it because they're just, it's just so, it's just the way you think. I've been reading a book, and you can judge me if you want, I'm okay with it, uh, by Stephen Harper called Right Here, Right Now. Um, I've always just, I've never really known why I was conservative why did I, why, because my parents were, right? And so I want to know where I am on the political spectrum, what that would look like. And so I thought, well, here's a guy that did a lot for our country. I'll read it. But he has this incredible observation that I couldn't get out of my mind. And he, he categorizes people into two different categories called somewheres or anywheres. Two different types of people. Anywheres are the people who one day they're working in Japan and the next day they're working in Germany or Singapore. They're very transient. They're all over the globe and they have friends all over the place. They have a place that they call home, but it's more just, just the launching pad to life. It's not really home per se. Or we can look at the younger generation that's coming up. Our, my parents are always like, you've got to get a house, you've got to settle down. You gotta, like, that, was the, that was the story. That was the currency that you've made it. You've got your house, picket fence, everything's good. There's a new currency now, which is experience. The experience of traveling the globe. And so you stay long enough in one spot just to make enough money so you can go on the next pursuit, the next adventure to find freedom and joy. In fact, that's what a lot of these commercials and winning of the lottery is all about. An experience. You have the money that you can now have that experience that will be a fulfilled life that where you'll thrive. And yet missing from all of these narratives is this idea of living for the betterment of those around you. Right? Of giving things up for the, the sake of others. Anywheres also seem to find connections through online social groups. And I'm guilty of that as well. Like whether it's mountain biking, whether it's a cause of some sort, the knitting club, or whatever it is, you have this connection with people in this social, internet, virtual world that you connect with, but you're not really connected because they're not coming over and helping you change your baby's diaper, right? They're not helping you when you're sick and bringing you groceries. They're, they're out there, right? Like, even my friends from high school, like, <laughs> they're not my friends, I'm... Because I don't know them anymore. There's this virtual anywhere. We, we have these connections, but they're not really around or grounded around real life situations. Then there's the somewheres. The somewheres are people who have had their roots, like my mom. She's a somewhere. She's rooted. She's grounded. She lives in a local community. She's been there for a very long time. She's invested. 
She knows most of the people and what's going on in that community at some level. She understands what people are going through because she's there. She's one of the community. They also think and care about the success of the community that they live in because it's their community. They're involved. They're in the midst of it. They're seeking the betterment of the community. It's their home. They don't just hang their hat there. They live there. They're local. They're the, they're the insiders of that part of everyday life of the community. In comparison, anywheres, anywheres are outsiders. Their, their community is global. Their tribe is global. They're, they're made up of people all over the world that they've met and shared experiences with, but they don't have the same daily deep connections and interactions in flesh and blood. As I was thinking of this, I was thinking about why uh, going to camp as a kid, why it was such a powerful thing in my life. You've had them, you know, the camp experience. You go and it's just great and you come back, you're like, yeah. And you've made these friends for life that you see next year, right? It's powerful because you have this, this moment where you experience in an intense way what you feel to be very real. And it is real, but it's not connected to the everyday stuff of life. It's the same when you make friends that you meet when you're traveling or all those different things. They're great relationships, but they're not, they're anywhere relationships. They might not be somewhere relationships. And they're a bit idealistic in some ways because they're not seeing the nitty-gritty every day, down in the dirt, hard things that you go through in life. And it's very easy to hide it when you're in anywhere, right? But you can't hide it when you're somewhere. Proximity is God's design and desire for us. God is social. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And He's created you with the need as a social being for real-life interactions with each other. Statistics say this is the most loneliest generation ever on the planet, and yet we're the most connected we've ever been. Why? Because it's virtual, it's not, it's not here. And so parents, you have an incredible opportunity and, re- and responsibility to help your children to be connected. So what does this all have to do with Jonah? Well, I think Jonah is facing some of these similar challenges Not only we've talked about that we face as followers of Christ in a world that doesn't follow Christ. We read about Jonah. This is his second time with the command to go. He's forgiven. He's vomited out. He's cleansed. He's purified. He's been made right with God. And immediately God just says, go. He doesn't put him on the back bench. He's not a second liner. He's right at the front again. His relationship with God has been completely restored. There's nothing hindering him. And God tells him to go to Nineveh. And we notice that Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches a message that God had told him to preach. He goes into the city, he declares the message, and he's, and he's being obedient to God. Now granted, this would have been challenging to go to the most wicked people in the world and tell them that you have 40 days and God's going to judge you and destroy you, right? Like, that, that would be uncomfortable to say the least, but he goes. He's not preaching some health, wealth, and prosperity message by any means, rather one of destruction, but it was the word of God. It was the holy God 
who had given Jonah the words to speak on his behalf. And Jonah went and he proclaimed them. And what happens? They listen. They repent. But there's something other, something else that happens here. Jonah goes into the city, he preaches the message, and then we pick up in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Well, what is he waiting to see might become of the city? Anybody know? What's that? Yeah, the east. He's on the east side. That was where judgment of God was come from. It was a visible picture. So he's on the east side hoping... That even though they've repented, he's hoping that God is going to pour out his judgment and destroy them. But what he does something here, he, he disobeys God. He disobeys God by going outside of the city, sitting down and making a booth for himself as he watched the city from the outside. God never gave Jonah permission to leave the city. Just think about that for a moment. God did not give Jonah permission to disengage the city. Yes, he told him to go and preach to the city, but Jonah was unwilling to live in the city to show the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of God that had changed his life. There's a tension that we have as Christians. And you can go to either extreme. Well, I'm just going to preach the gospel. Or I'm just going to do social, social work. No, God has said you need to do both. We were walking in the coldest night of the year. I told Bernie I was going to share, share this. Is their life group has gone through something called Gospel Fluency. It's, it's a book. I highly recommend it. It's how do you speak the gospel into everyday life. Most of you, I'm sure here, are loving, caring, gracious people. People of integrity when people, they know your people around you who don't have faith can trust you. But do you ever connect the dots of why you're trustworthy? Do you ever connect the dots of why you're generous? When you, oh man, you're so generous. Well, the reason why I'm generous is because God has been so generous to me. He who was rich became poor, so I was poor, who I, though I was poor, could become rich. He, he poured out his generosity on me through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's why I'm generous. It's both. The problem is here is Jonah disengages, but God hadn't given the permission. Remember, God is the creator and sustainer. We've been singing about that this morning. He's created all things, and he's done it with his what? How's he, how did God create? With what? His word. And he told Jonah, the holy, creating, sustaining God said, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to speak these words. And he does it. God's word has been given to you and I so that you and I would thrive. And when we don't obey God's word or we decide that we're going to go to our own way and follow our own truth and understandings, we don't thrive anymore. (laughs) It's quite the opposite. Actually, we harm ourselves. Think about the Ten Commandments. Why were they given? Is it just like so God can do this to us? No, it's actually so that we would thrive. 
so that socially we would thrive, not only with each other, but with God. And all of those Ten Commandments were given as a response of God's grace. Remember, I, the Lord your God, have delivered you out of the land of Egypt. I've saved you. I've poured out my grace on you. Now here's how you live in response to that grace. It's always been about grace, so that you would thrive with God and with each other socially. And we know, as we look at the world, when those basic commandments are disobeyed, it doesn't bring thriving. It brings all sorts of dysfunction and hurt and pain. I only have to look across the street at my neighbor who is in the process of divorce and having her boyfriend live at her house with all of her kids and just see the pain and the destruction. And some of you have experienced that yourselves and it grieves you. And yet God is a God of grace who can lead us out of that pain too. When we violate the those wise words of God, and when we go against His created design, instead of thriving, we will find ourselves suffering and harming ourselves and those around us. And like Jonah, we will go outside the city and we will build these booths of our own making over ourselves to protect us, whatever they may be. It's your way of coping, protecting yourself from the pain and the hurts that are around you. And yet it is only the provision of God that can bring the relief that you desire. If you, and we'll look at this later on, but a leaf grows up and it's like, oh, finally, it feels great. Obviously, this booth wasn't that great, was it? But how, how often do I build my booths as well? Jonah has said that he's believed that God is gracious and merciful and that, that the steadfast love of the Lord is forever, and Jonah has experienced this. He went and spoke God's message, but he did not go and demonstrate the God who had forgiven, redeemed, restored Jonah according to God's grace, mercy, and steadfast love. Instead, he left the city. He disengaged the city. That begs the question, why did God restore, forgive, redeem, love, show mercy and grace to Jonah? Why has God restored, forgiven, shown grace, Mercy, salvation, and His love to you. What's the purpose? What was the reason that God had poured out His grace, mercy, and love on Jonah who deserved death, right? That's, you guys know the joke I always say to my son when he does something. What do you deserve, Jabin? Death. Right? The wages of sin is what? Death. That's what we deserve. That's what Jonah deserved. But we see that he is redeemed by God. He's restored by God. Why did God save Jonah? Why had God forgiven Jonah? Why does God save you? Why has God forgiven you? Why has God restored Jonah? Why has God restored you? One of the commentators I have been thoroughly enjoying is Jack Salul, and I've mentioned him a few times as we've been going through the book of Jonah, but he makes this statement. He says, The Christian is not just a man or woman who is saved by Christ, but he or she is the man or woman who God uses for the salvation of others by Christ. You see, when we live in an individualistic culture, we begin to think that our salvation is primarily for me. But it's not. It is, but it isn't. 
He goes on and he says, From the moment faith develops in you and I, we must be permeated by the conviction that if grace is given or conferred on us, it's primarily for others. It is never for our own personal satisfaction. We don't get to save, navel gaze, everything's good. It's for a purpose. It's for a mission. And it isn't to sit outside the city. Consider Galatians that we went through some time back. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why has God poured His love into your heart by the Holy Spirit? Why has God shown you and I grace and mercy and given us peace and rest through His work for us on the cross? It's so that we would engage each other in the city. I think sometimes you know this, and you've heard me speak on it a lot. Leaven, Jim knows a lot about this lately as he's into making his sourdough bread. Leaven only works when it's in the midst of the dough. Now, there's two definitions for leaven. The first one is the one that we commonly think of, a substance, typically yeast, that's used in dough to make it rise. But there's a second definition. It's a pervasive influence that modifies or transforms it for the better. Leaven is a pervasive influence that modifies or transforms it for the better. How could Jonah be used as leaven in the lives of these wicked people sitting outside of the city? What are some other things that God calls us in Scripture? Off the top of your head, what are some other things? There's leaven, what other things can you think of? Salt, light, living stones in a temple, We are the body of Christ, vine, branches. God himself is the triune God. He's created us in his image as social beings so that we would impact the lives of those around us. It's your calling. It's your mission. Unfortunately, most of my life, I've sat outside the city. Not wanting judgment, but... And yet Christ himself, the Word made flesh, said that we're to be in the world but not of the world. Church, we're to be somewheres, not anywheres. We're to live lives that are connected, lives that are intertwined, lives that need each other. Vine, branches, sinews, ligaments are pictures of how God desires you and I to be somewheres. So why don't we? Why don't you? Why don't I? Why is it so hard? Do you not struggle with this too? Or am I like the only one? Okay, I'm just preaching to myself this morning. 
But Lisa and I, we're really wrestling through this, and we want to wrestle it with you, together with you. God has created you and I according to his perfect wisdom. And God, in his perfect wisdom, has given us his word. His word, his, his scriptures. Not so that we would just have some mental assent. Yeah, I agree with that, and we nod. But that our lives would be transformed. That we would thrive, that we would be fulfilled. And it's not going to be in the patterns of the world. And that's our struggle. When you lift up and go to, a, when you go to the beach and you lift up a rock and you see all those crazy little things going on under that rock. Have you ever done that? There's like just hundreds of things. It's called an ecosystem, right? And in that ecosystem, everything needs each other to flourish. If, if each part works properly, this is Ephesians, if each part, each part works properly, then everything is healthy and it grows up into love. It thrives. If one of the elements of the ecosystem is missing, it doesn't work properly and it throws everything out of balance and every part suffers. <laughs> we see that in nature. Isn't that what we're struggling with as climate change and all these different things? Aren't, aren't we seeing that and, and how it's gripping us? But do you see that in your own lives and hearts? You know that the ecosystem is created by God for a spiritual reality to show you a spiritual reality that's about us and about God. And it cries out to his glory of who he is, that he is a social God, that we're all interdependent and connected. It's profound. Are you thriving? Am I thriving? Jonah's disengaged, according to his wisdom, and now he sits outside the city. The man who knows and has experienced the amazing, life-changing grace, mercy, and steadfast love of God has walked outside the city, and he's sitting down, watching and hoping that God's judgment will come and destroy these people. For all intents and purposes, he's becoming anywhere. He's forgotten that he's supposed to be somewhere. You are leaven. Meant to influence and make things better in this world. You are salt. You are a preservative so that things wouldn't decay. That you would bring a savoryness to the world. It would come alive. You know, salt likes meat and meat likes salt. You're the light of the world, a city on a hill. You were made and saved according to the wisdom and the grace of God to live in the midst of each other. That's God's word. That's why God's given you gifts. He's given me gifts. And it's not about the gifts. More and more, as I get older, it's not about the gifts. The gifts were just God's wisdom to keep you in proximity with each other. Because if we make it about the gifts, then it's about the people. God doesn't need me to do something for Him. But He has created me with a need to be in the lives of other people. 
But I like to be a hermit, and it's really difficult. I'm quite content to be alone. But that isn't God's word. It's a lie. You and I are meant to live in proximity to each other. We're arms, we're legs, we're fingers, we're toes. You know all these imageries if you've been in the church. Your ligaments that keep us connected, and so do your gifts. They keep you connected in that ecosystem of God's body. United by His grace and truth in the person of Christ, we become a city within the city. But we're not outside the city. We are a people of faith, a community of faith, a community within a community, not separated and outside in a booth somewhere up on a hill overlooking the city doing our own thing, but a city within a city. We, recently I was sitting with a bunch of different people and we were talking about some of the charitable organizations within the valley and how we wanted to support a couple of different ones. One was a non-profit one that had no Christian connections and the other one was and one of the christians sitting there, well why we can't support that because they're not christian i'm like yeah but this group here is doing what god cares about and by supporting it we're showing that we care about the city you see we want to be on the outside rather than on the inside that opens up more conversation about well why do you care about this donnie well, because my god cares about that and obviously, you care about it too, so we have something in common. Why do you care about it? Why is this? Do you see what I'm going, where I'm going with this? But so many times as a church, we want to set up our own little ministries instead of joining what's already happening that God cares about. In John 13, 34, and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The the implication to this verse is the world will be watching us as they see us love each other. So the implication is that we're loving each other in the midst of the world, not outside it. There's these layers. There's the inside layer of somewheres loving, living, and caring for each other. They see us being a forgiving community. They see us getting angry and frustrated and hurting each other and then forgiving each other with the forgiveness that we received in Christ. And they go, how can you guys do that? How can you like that guy? He's an idiot. Because he's my brother and we're both pure and blameless before a holy God based on what Christ has done. I'm the idiot, by the way. And the world sees this. They they see us being generous. And you see that in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament too. It says when you when you when you your your crops, leave a big ring around the edge so that people can come and so you can help other people. Don't just keep it all for yourself. You come to the New Testament. The Holy Spirit comes on God's people and they had everything in common. And the world was watching this city within a city. They saw people confessing their sins to each other because of things that they'd done in the past. When God moves in the lives of His people, things that could happen 10 years ago or 15 years ago, people are going and asking for forgiveness. Oh, that God would move in our lives. That He would open up our lives and our hearts to each other. 
And we would do this not in some private little space, but we'd do it out in the public, in our community. In Colossians it says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Like Jonah, we've been vomited out into the light, right into the open arms of our Father, robed in the righteous robes of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And we are seated forever at the table of God's grace and trusted once again with the Father's kingdom to look after it. And we're to do that as people watch us. That's the outside layer. We're to be loving each other on the inside, but we'll be doing it in such a way that it would spread to the outside. That's how the early church grew. Listen to some of the things that are said about the early church in the first few centuries. Justin Martyr was an early Christian theologian. And he writes this to Emperor Antonius Pius as he described the early Christians. He says, We formerly rejoiced in uncleanness of life, but now we love only chastity, purity. Before we used the magic arts, but now dedicate ourselves to the true and unbegotten God. Before, we loved money and possessions more than anything, but now we share what we have and to everyone who is in need, everyone who is in need. Before, we hated one another and killed one another, And will not eat with those of another race. But now since the manifestation of Christ. We have come to a common life. And pray for our enemies. And try to win over those who hate us without just cause. When Emperor Julian the apostate wanted to revive pagan religion in the mid 300's. He gave a most helpful insight into how the church spread. This opponent of the faith. This man who was against the faith said that Christianity has been, speci- has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care of the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help we should render them. So I want you to hear this morning the Lord saying to you, as He has been saying to me and Lisa as we try to figure this out, go to Nineveh. Go. Jesus did not preach a message of repentance only, but He lived among the people to show them what truth lived out looked like. Think of Him at the woman at the well. He should never have had an interaction with her or the adulterous woman. Or touching these unclean people which would make him unclean. He was showing how someone who is in communion with the Holy God Father lived. And he says to the apostles and to you and I, do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. I do not ask for these only the apostles, but to those who will believe in me through the apostles' word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Well, why? Why? That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
Your and my salvation, forgiveness, being reconciled, being at peace and communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is so that the world may believe in Jesus. When Jesus says, I want you to go, therefore go and make disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And I will be with you to the very end of the age. You know why that makes you thrive? Because the power and presence of God are experienced when you're on the mission of God. And I feel sometimes in my own life that I don't experience that because I'm on the wrong mission. Later on in that same gospel, in the gospel of John, Jesus says to them again, peace be with you as my Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And so I want to encourage you to live lives of boldness. It's interesting if you read, read the first few chapters of Acts up to about chapter 7 or 8. And do you know what the people pray for? They don't pray that they won't suffer. They pray for boldness. So here, here we have the same struggle today, don't we? Things don't really change that much. So I want to encourage you this morning to get involved with the the city, the little city, the inner city, and the outside city. In Proverbs 3, 19 and 20, he says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. No wisdom, Proverbs 21, 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. God has called you and I to be somewheres, to trust His Word. He who founded the earth, who established the heavens, whose knowledge broke open the deep. And His Word tells us that we're to be rooted in community, rooted in two worlds, the inner city and the outer city. In John 17, I have given them your word, And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Jesus is praying this to the Father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. God has given you His word that you and I might thrive, but also that the world might believe in Jesus as they see us thriving according to God's wisdom and word. In the devotional that I've been reading on Proverbs, Timothy Keller writes this, so there is a givenness to things physically, socially, morally, and spiritually, that is built into the fabric of creation, the way things are supposed to be. We can't treat our body any way we want without consequences. We can't treat people any way we want and expect to have good friends and a strong family. 
We can't live selfish lives and expect our social fabric to remain intact. And there is also spiritual order. If we try to center our lives on anything but God, it leads to a fragile identity and psychological disorder. It is the essence of wisdom to perceive this divine order in life and to align one's life with it. So my questions to you this morning are this. How might you need to align yourself to the wisdom of God when it comes to living in that community of faith, the inner city, this body of believers? What steps might you need to take to get greater aligned with your brothers and sisters in Christ to become a part of a social fabric together? What would that look like? Secondly, how might you, we, me, how, how can we align ourselves in living out our faith in response to Christ in the outer city, in this community, this amazing, beautiful community that God has given us the privilege of living in? What steps might you and I need to take so that we could better show people as we live out our lives together that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords? On a side note, as I was reading through the Old Testament, every time a king would conquer other nations, they would never kill the other kings. They would cut their toes off or one eye or something. But they always kept the kings alive. Do you know why? So that they could be the king of kings. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. And he's our king. And we are his servants. Are there areas in your and my life where we are pushing against the fabric of God's order of creation spiritually and physically and not thriving as He intended? And what steps might God be calling you to do? I'm not going to give you five steps that I think you need to do. You need to work that out with God. It's a relationship, right? Go talk to Him. Ask Him to search you. God, what am I doing? God, what does this mean? What, how do I? Go interact with Him. So as you come to communion today, I pray that you would just, you'd ask him and you'd be encouraged. So let me pray for you as we work out this struggle in our own lives. Let's, I, I pray that it just brings dialogue and conversation of what's next. In a few weeks, Ryan is going to speak to us, I think, on, on some of the indigenous issues in our country and what is a, a gospel, a Christian response to that. Ryan does a lot of research for the First Nations for some of their uh, treaties and stuff like that. He's, he has been an incredible asset to me in helping change some of my heart and thoughts towards some of the indigenous issues. And so um, we'll give you the date when that comes. I just want us, I want us to live out our faith, right? And this is a real practical way with all the tensions that we have in our country. So um, let me pray for you. Father, thank you that we can gather here today. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would and I see it happening, God. I see you drawing us in more and more ways, living our lives together. And I pray that you would, you would bless us as we seek to walk in those steps of faith of, of what and how you've created us. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that, that you would move in their lives and their hearts of how they might see their place within this body. God, that we'd help each dis- discover what that looks like and what our place is to play so that we can be in proximity of each other 
that we can rub off on each other, that we can encourage one another, then come alongside one another, know what's going on in each other's lives for your glory. And Father, I pray as a church that you would also give us insight of how we can step out into the greater city of the Comox Valley and walk alongside and care and love. And God, some saints here have done that so well through their faithfulness at the soup kitchen for a long time. And we thank you for their witness. We thank you for the picture that they're showing us. So Father, we just ask that you would would help us. I pray this in the name of Christ. I pray this for your glory. And as we come to the table, as we eat, as we drink, as we're reminded, Jesus, of what you've done, also remind us of why you've done it. It is our desire to be used by you to live for you. So help us to do that. And thank you that, like Jonah, he never finally got it really figured all out. But nonetheless, you have used him. And so there's great encouragement for us too. That the work you started, you will bring to completion. So bless us now as we eat and as we drink. God, as we sing these amazing songs of truth, I just pray that you would stir up our hearts. We thank you for the shed blood of Christ. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Thank you that your shedding of blood also brings our praise to you as acceptable. And God, you thank you for the bread, which is a picture of our participation, of our togetherness, of being the body of Christ. So stir in our hearts. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.